Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Hi, I'm Pranay Bonagiri. I'm one of the new Inside the Boards podcast hosts. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Shubrook. So just a quick bio for Dr. Shubrook. Dr. Jay Shubrook is a board-certified family medicine physician and diabetologist. He attended University of California, Santa Cruz for undergrad and Ohio University College of Osteopathic Medicine for medical school. Dr. Shubrook then went on to complete his residency at Firelands Regional Health System in Sandusky, Ohio. And after working in the primary care field for a decade, Dr. Shubrook went back to OU to complete his diabetology fellowship. Afterwards, Dr. Shubrook then spent many years as the director of clinical division at the Diabetes Institute at Ohio University, as well as a director of clinical research and the Diabetes Fellowship at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. He now serves as a professor in the primary care department at the Turo University California College of Osteopathic Medicine, as well as the director of the clinical research and director of diabetes services. Additionally, he has served on numerous national committees developing diabetes care guidelines and has been published extensively in the field of diabetology. So I know you have a lot of physicians, Dr. Shubrook. Is there anything else you'd like me to add to your bio that you'd like to add? No, that's more than enough. Uh, It's very gracious and I'm happy to be here today. Yeah. So would you personally like to start with some like board review questions or maybe some questions about how you got into diabetology? Let's just talk a little background and then we'll dive into the questions. So, Okay, um, yeah. So well, what kind of drew you to the field to begin with? Well, I really liked family medicine because I liked the freedom it gave me to do inpatient, outpatient, adults, kids. I really had the widest choice and I, I like to do a lot of different things. So for me, that's what made family medicine so good. But I had learned over time that I really liked the chronic disease management. And I really like the math that's associated with some of the endocrine diseases, specifically diabetes. Yeah. And none of my partners seemed to like that. So my, my practice got bigger and bigger, focused on diabetes. And I said, well, if I'm going to do this, I feel like I need to get better training and support so I can do it well. And that's what brought me to diabetology. Was it hard to go back into a fellowship after practicing for you know, a couple of years? So I think for most people, it would be very hard. I was already faculty at Ohio University, and so they allowed me to do my fellowship while I was faculty. So there wasn't much hardship on my end, but I do think if people are considering a fellowship, the earlier you do it, the better, because fellowships get paid less than physicians. And there are now multiple fellowships in the country. So there are primary care providers, either internal medicine or family medicine, that want to do diabetology, there is an option for you out there. That's cool. That's really good to know. If you had to choose one thing or a couple of things, what is the most exciting thing about your field right now? Well, so I think there's no shortage of diabetes. And the treatment of diabetes, including type 1 and type 2, is just so rapidly progressed. And so for many people, I think they're overwhelmed when they have to know diabetes on top of everything else. I just need to know diabetes. And so all of these exciting advances have been kind of easy for me to grab onto. And in many respects, my practice is a whole lot simpler as a diabetologist than it was as a family medicine physician. Cool. Yeah, that's very good to know. If a student is interested in pursuing you know, a diabetes fellowship or even just learning more about the field, 
Do you have any resources you would recommend? Yes. There's currently two pathways to, to become a diabetologist. First, of course, is doing an endocrine and diabetes fellowship, mm-hmm. which would be a subspecialty of internal medicine. And that gives you really freedom to do diabetes as well as all the other endocrine diseases. The second pathway, which is newer, is the primary care diabetology fellowship. And we just published a paper in clinical diabetes online this past month, providing the national standards for this specialty. So you have to be board eligible in your primary field, either internal medicine or family medicine, and then complete a diabetes fellowship. There's currently five in the country, I believe, Ohio University, East Carolina, Toro University, California, University of Colorado, and University of Pennsylvania. And then soon there may be one at Ohio State as well. Oh, and there's also Duke. Also Duke. Yeah. Yeah, so it seems the field is expanding pretty rapidly. Need is great, and so this, the field is growing to try to match it. Yeah, that's great. Definitely good to know about the job market for this type of thing if you're trying to get into it. So I know you're probably a little bit removed from taking board exams, but do you have any advice for taking board exams? You know, I know you do mentor a lot of students and you have a lot of students on clinical rotations, but if you have any general advice, that would be appreciated. Sure. So I think the things I'd, I'd share the most are, first of all, we all want to do what we're good at. And that's probably not the best use of our board study time. So if you're really solid in physiology or solid in, let's say, oncology, that would not be the area I'd focus on. I'd focus on the areas that you're weakest because you're more likely to get the most bang for your buck by improving scores where you're weaker. So for me, it was microbiology. I was never good at microbiology. I was never good at pharmacology. So those were sections I had to study more. And then I think the other thing is, you know, very little of our time as physicians are spent taking long standardized tests. And so I think the other thing I would encourage people to do is to consider taking on regular intervals, longer tests so that you don't lose points from fatiguing from a long test as opposed to just not knowing it. So I think, you know, whether that's once a month as you prepare for the boards, take something that's four hours longer to make sure that you're prepared to do the the endurance, kind of like marathon training. Yeah, I, I definitely do agree with that. I, I always found myself like I would have to do multiple U-World blocks on top of each other to try and simulate you know, the actual exam. And I feel like if you go into it without preparation, it can, you can definitely get tired you know, midway through and you miss questions based purely on how tired you are. So yeah, I agree. Right. That's great advice. So this is more of a pretty broad question, but do you have any tips, tricks, or pearls for medical students when seeing patients with diabetes on rotation? You know, anything you should look out for specifically, like the best way to approach a patient or, sorry, that's a pretty broad question, but. Yeah, no problem. So there are a few things. I think, uh, first of all, students generally have time that physicians don't have. And so I think it's a luxury and you can get to know your patient better. So I always encourage you to ask the patient, what is your diabetes story? And unlike many other diseases, people usually have a very defined story about how they found out they had diabetes. And that's not only good for you to connect to see what's important for them, what's meaningful for them, but it might also help you sort out what type of diabetes they have. So I would say, find out the person's diabetes story. Two, make sure that you don't use the word diabetic. People with diabetes want to be seen as people, not as labeled as a condition. So, you know, So I think that's important to say that you have diabetes. And then I would say don't make any pre-assumed notions about diet. 
have an open-ended discussion about what their dietary changes are. Many people feel judged when you're talking to them about their diet. And then I would also say, make sure you ask about hypoglycemia. I think one of the biggest barriers to treatment is patients being very scared about hypoglycemia, either because they've heard about it or they've experienced it. And that often undercuts the utility of our treatments. And so if you as a student can identify that a patient's actually maybe not taking treatment as prescribed because they were either doing defensive eating or omitting meds to prevent hypoglycemia, you could really improve their care. Yeah, no, those are great points. Actually, could you expand a little bit on defensive eating? I don't know if I've ever heard that term defined. Sure. So if you look at like a lot of textbooks, we used to tell people that they should have three meals and two to three snacks per day, right? Their meals are breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then they'd have a mid-morning snack, a mid-afternoon snack, and a bedtime snack. Well, those snacks were there because we were using insulins that would peak between meals, and if people didn't eat, they would drop low. So that was a fine treatment way back when. But now people are like, you know, I have a, a gentleman I saw this past week. He works in the fields. And he says, you know, when I take my medicine, and he can only afford certain medicines, if he doesn't eat while he's working, he's going to get shaky and sweaty. So he's not eating for nutrition. He's eating to prevent a low or to treat a low. I see. And that's what we yeah. call defensive eating. Good we want know. food to be nutrition, not prevention of hypo, because we should be able to pick medicines that don't cause people to drop low now. Yeah, no, that's something very important to be aware of. And honestly, I feel like I do not really think of that when I talk to patients about their diet. So yeah, that's a good point to bring up. Well, if you don't have anything else you'd like to add in this little segment, we can just move on to the, the questions. Yeah, I might um, add one more thing and then we go can do our questions. Yeah. The other thing is always look at injection sites. You know, so many people take their injections incorrectly, and that also affects the way their medicine works. And I literally had a patient of mine who I was treating. I did the initial education, and he came in, he said his insulin wasn't working. I said, let me see how you do it. And he was actually injecting his insulin in his knee. Oh, and I'm no. like, why, why are you injecting it? He said, well, it never hurts there because I have a scar. <laughs> but he wasn't getting any insulin because he's yeah. injecting in a large vascular space. So make sure patients are not injecting into scar tissue, into previous scars or areas they can't absorb insulin. And so whether it's insulin or not, make sure you look at injection sites. That would be another high yield tip. Yeah, no, that's good to know. I, I get his logic, especially after we had our lab doing our injections on ourselves, not wanting to cause pain. But yeah, sure. so it's good to always review, you know, proper technique with the patients. All right. So question number one. We have a 48-year-old woman who presented to the clinic wanting to know if she should be screened for diabetes because her second cousin was recently diagnosed with diabetes mellitus. The patient's BMI is 29 kilograms per meter squared. Her blood pressure is 135 over 85. Her triglycerides are 200 milligrams per deciliter and her HDL is 40 milligrams per deciliter. Which of the following factors would make you want to test her for diabetes as recommended by the United States Preventative Services Task Force? Is it A, her BMI, B, her HDL, C, her triglycerides, or D, her blood pressure? So all of those are concerns, first of all. So I think all of them are reasonable answers. And in some respects, I think once you're in clinical practice, it is harder than it is easier because there are a lot of gray areas. But because the question asked about the United States Preventive Task Service Force, their guidelines say that anyone that's overweight or obese above the age of 40 should be screened 
for diabetes. So I, that's probably the best available answer. But I would also say that diabetic dyslipidemia with high trigs and low HDL would also be you know, a reasonable answer, not listed in the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. And that blood pressure is certainly in that kind of medium range where it's not frank hypertension, but it is above where it should be. So I think the A is the best answer. Yeah, and you're absolutely correct. And like you said, it is definitely hard when you're actually in practice to differentiate and, you know, pick a singular factor to screen for. But, you know, for the sake of test taking students, I think the United States Preventative Services Task Force are the guidelines we've been told to follow and we should follow when answering these types of questions. So you kind of answered this question a little bit, but a little follow-up question. Are there any other objective signs that you look for when screening for diabetes? Sure. So there are many. And, you know, because diabetes is so common, you want to pick things that are going to be high yield. So I think the highest yield are probably physical signs. So for example, the truncal obesity or someone that's overweight or obese who is an adult, that's one that you're going to get a pretty high yield. The other is evidence of insulin resistance on your skin. Acanthosis on on your neck, armpits, or in groin would also be another finding that I think would be important. And then I think a third would be a family history of type 2 diabetes or a history of gestational diabetes. Those would be the factors that I find have the highest yield for screening tests for diabetes. Yeah, those are great answers. So uh, just for the sake of the listeners, do you mind defining the acanthosis, like how it would look on a patient? Sure. So acanthosis was once thought to be an uncommon skin condition, but it's actually relatively common. And it's the hyperproliferation of melanocytes in areas where there should be high turnover of skin, but the skin doesn't turn over. So commonly it's seen on the back of the neck, can be seen in the armpit, and it can be seen in the groin. And commonly, when you see it, people think it's dirt. Sadly, the most common complaint I hear is, my daughter has a dirty neck and it won't clean off. Well, it's not at all dirt. It's actually the proliferation of melanocytes in response to insulin-like growth factor. And acanthosis is a, usually a permanent condition, signifying most commonly insulin resistance. But it, I should note that particularly since you're talking about boards, it's sometimes also seen in certain colorectal cancers but most commonly in, in, in insulin resistance. Yeah, no, I was actually going to make that reference. Yeah, more likely than not, if you see a question stem that, you know, describing acanthosis, nagricans, I think the, the answer choice will be leaning towards, you know, type 2 diabetes. So after a person has a positive screen, you know, what are the next steps? I mean, like maybe you do specifically in your office when you see these patients. Yeah, so there are multiple ways to screen for diabetes. So you can screen by a fasting glucose, a glucose tolerance test, or random glucose, or an A1C. By definition, you really, and this is probably a board-related question, you should have two positive tests separated by time. So one fasting glucose, even if it's 170, at least academically is not correct. You need to have two because anything can happen any given day. But it could be two different things. So you could have today a fasting glucose that's elevated and next time an A1C that's elevated, and that would get you the criteria. For us, we rarely get to see people when they're newly diagnosed, so they're usually seen by their primary care physician, but often people are recommended to have diabetes education and start metformin as the first treatment, and that first treatment is the combination of both, not one or the other. Good to know. And yeah, my last question was actually related to that. So after a patient is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, you know, what are the next steps? 
what are the referrals that the primary care doctor has to make? What medication should they be initiated on? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you, you know, we've talked briefly about it, but diabetes education is critically important mm-hmm. for diabetes. I don't know if anyone is aware of this, but only about 7% of people who are newly diagnosed actually go to diabetes education in the first year of their diagnosis. And I liken that to like driver's ed. How many of you would have been comfortable driving a car never having had driver's ed? I'm sure you'd figure it out, but you'd probably bump and break a lot of things along the way. So, you know, diabetes is a complicated condition to manage. And so please do your patients a favor by getting them to diabetes education. And quite honestly, a family or primary care physician's strong recommendation for diabetes education is the strongest predictive value that the patient will go. And so it's really kind of our responsibility to tell people how important that is. And then medicine-wise, it is recommended you start metformin in addition to lifestyle changes at the onset of type 2 diabetes. And the reason why that is, is that it very quickly loses potency if you don't start it early in the disease. So we want you to do both. And, that, and that's strongly supported by the guidelines. Okay, good to know. Yeah, I feel like we always hear lifestyle changes first. So I'm glad you kind of reaffirmed or confirmed that, you know, you start both at the same time for diabetes. Mm-hmm. So speaking of medications, our, that's what our next question is about. So a 68-year-old man is being treated for type 2 diabetes with an oral medication. He comes down with a very bad cold, and for several days he barely eats because he does not feel well, but he continues to take his medications. He comes to the office with a serum glucose reading of 45. Which of the mm. following drugs is he most likely taking? Is it A, metformin, B, dipagliflozin, C, acarbos, or D, chlorpropamide? Yeah, so what a great question, and that's really a very common scenario. So you have an older patient who's probably taking medicines that they can afford because they have Medicare, which is usually metformin and sulfonylureas, and they're coming in with decreased appetite, and so they drop low. So, you know, I think it's very important to know that there's really only three classes of medicines that will drop you low just based upon a change in activity. So sulfonylureas, chlorpropamide is a very old sulfonylurea, rarely yeah. used, but any of the sulfonylureas could do it at this point. Repaglinide and nitagnolide, which are the glinides, they're short-acting insulin secretagogues, and then insulin. So in the short of those three meds, people shouldn't drop low if they stop eating. So DAPA is an SGLT2, a carbose is an alpha-glucosidase inhibitor, and then chlorpropamide is a sulfonylurea. It was the fourth one metformin. Yeah, the fortolone was metformin. Yeah, so really, I don't expect people to become hypoglycemic from those other three medications. They might certainly become dehydrated, and they could have some other side effects. But you know, someone that's not eating or drinking, I might stop metformin or an SGLT2, but not because of hypoglycemia. That's a pretty straightforward question, that that's a sulfonylurea effect. Yeah, no, you're perfectly on point. I think the, the hardest part about this question was, at least for students, was recognizing that clopropamide was a sulfonylurea because I feel like it's not one of the ones we normally learn in class. Just for the listeners, could you talk about how, the way sulfonylureas work in a patient and why it tends to cause hypoglycemia? Sure. Well, I think the first thing is there's a lot of medicines to remember. The key thing is that they ended in IDE, ID. Yeah. So chlorpropamide, glipizide, glyburide, glimepiride, 
those are all repaglinide, nitaglinide. So they all end in IDE, which means they're in that class of sulfonylurea or fast-acting insulin secretagogue. So the way that these medications work is that they do in our glucose independent insulin secretion. So it's really important factors. So I call these cruise control for diabetes. If someone's glucose is very high, these medicines are very potent and they'll bring your sugar down slowly but steadily. And so they go fast no matter what's happening. But the problem with cruise control, if I'm trying to drive here from, let's say, Fairfield to you, Vallejo, California, and I want to put my cruise control on 60 and go the whole way, I'm never going to work. Because, you know, what happens along the way? There's people stopped. There might be an accident. There might be red light. So the problem with sulfonylureas and glenides is that if you start with a lower glucose level or you don't eat or drink like you normally do or you do more activity than you normally do, you're very high risk for hypoglycemia. And so because of its glucose-independent insulin secretion, that's what contributes to the high rate of hypoglycemia. And this guy could also have that problem because he's older and maybe he has decreased renal function and maybe he's clearing his medications more slowly. So that's yet another reason why he could have hypoglycemia. And the sad thing is in the US, these are cheap medicines. Mm -hmm. And so many people on a fixed income are going to be taking them because they're cheap. But that doesn't mean that they're safe. Yeah, I know. I agree. Are there any other common or worrisome side effects that we should watch out for? with this class of drug? Well, certainly uh, sulfonylureas, you can have a sulfur reaction. So that's one of the concerns. You also could have sustained, like chlorpropamide. Another good board question is chlorpropamide has an incredibly long Mm half-life. And so they might ask you a question where someone comes in, they're hypoglycemic, you treat them, you send them home, and then six hours later, they become hypoglycemic again. It's not because they took the medicine again. It's because the the medicine has something like a 72-hour half-life. I see. And so, you know, the last time I had someone that dropped low on on chlorpropamide, which is literally more than 15 years ago, we actually had to admit him to the hospital and run him on a dextrose drip for almost 24 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Because he just kept dropping low. Yeah. So so that would be the other thing is to know that if your renal function's declined or you're in a very long acting, you could have repeated episodes of hypoglycemia. I didn't realize it had such a long half-life. Another interesting thing that I wanted to ask you about is, so when I was looking up chlorpropamide, I read that it should never be used in people of Mongolian descent. Were you aware of, I'm sure you were aware of this, but. Okay. I wasn't. No, that's a new, okay. new reason for me. Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask why, but uh-huh, I'm not sure. I just thought it was uh, something unique and it it made it seem like it was just chlorpropamide specifically and not the, you know, the whole class of medication. Sure. I think we can safely say that no one should use chlorpropamide ever today. <laughs> we have many generic sulfonylureas, and um, at least two of them, glipizide and glimepiride, are much safer. I don't think we ever have, I haven't seen anyone on chlorpropamide for more than 10 years, and even gliburide is no longer recommended. So, sorry, could you repeat the ones you mentioned, glipizide and the other one? Glipizide and glimepiride are the two that are okay to use. And if there was a question about renal disease, glipizide is the safest sulfonylurea to use in advanced renal disease. Good to know. So basically, it would be best to default to glipizide, it seems like. Yes. Yes. Okay, and I only have one more question. So 
a 61-year-old woman with a history of type 2 diabetes mellitus on insulin presents to the emergency department unresponsive. Physical examination reveals sunken eyes and decreased skin turgor. A urinalysis is significant for large amounts of glucose with no ketones or proteins. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, insulin overdose, B, diabetic ketoacidosis, or C, hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state? So they set you up a little bit there. Yeah. Uh, it's an older person with, a, with a, I think, a, a known history of type 2 diabetes. Yes. And it sounds like they're pretty profoundly dehydrated. Mm-hmm. And the urine, which was great that they checked the urine, had no ketones, which is actually a little bit surprising at that level of uh, dehydration. But nonetheless, the two hyperglycemic emergencies that can occur, even in type 2, are diabetic ketoacidosis and hyperglycemic hyperosmolar coma or syndrome. And for people with type 2, they're more likely to get the latter. And what happens is with DKA, particularly in people with type 1, they get hyperglycemic and they very quickly get acidotic. The level of hyperglycemia is typically much lower in DKA, usually in the 300 to 500 range. It can mm-hmm. be higher, but typically it's lower because you start getting acidotic sooner. People with hyperglycemic hyperosmolar coma, they are actually going to become profoundly hyperglycemic, usually greater than 800, you know, multiple times I've had them more than 1,000, and they are much, much more dehydrated. So because they don't come through acidosis, they go through glucosuria, and they'll be, you know, someone with DK might be three to five liters down, someone with HHS is eight to 10 liters down. Wow. And yeah. so, so the level of dehydration is substantially worse. And even if she did have ketosis, the ketosis is relatively mild at a very high glucose, where someone with DK is going to have a lot of ketones at a lower glucose. So for me, I think I like the hyperglycemic hyperosmolar syndrome as the best answer. Yeah, and you were spot on. Uh, this question was trying to just get you to see the difference in the urinalysis results between DKA and uh, HHS. And yeah, like you said, it was positive for glucose and there were no ketones present at all. So it was a, a simple answer if you understood the urinalysis findings. I passed today. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Three, out, three for three. <laughs> I did have a couple follow-up questions about, you know, the DKA, HHS disease spectrum. Sure. Are there any symptoms you see, symptoms or signs you see more in DKA or HHS, you know, one word versus the other? Sure. If I'm trying to discriminate between the two, other than someone with a history of known type 1 and someone with a history of known type 2, many people with DKA start to develop abdominal pain and nauseousness as part of their acidosis. And so acidosis usually is a sign of, you know, the abdominal symptoms are a sign of acidosis to me. And so I think many people with DK are going to have more of those types of symptoms, where people with HHS are going to have much more symptoms of dehydration. And like I mentioned before, it'll be much more profound. And they often will also present with decreased level of consciousness because they're going to actually develop uh, relatively hyponatremia as a response to the profound glucosuria. Good to know. Have you ever encountered a patient with the you know the fruity smelling odor that we always hear about when we yeah. uh, when we were studying DKA? I, I mean, I don't know how common it is to actually find a patient with that. Yeah, so I would say 
I have a horrible sense of smell, but I still have have it. Um, I would say probably 50% of my patients who have been in DKA, you can smell them. And usually the nurses, the nurses are great. The nurses will say, hey, I have someone with DKA in room five. And I'm like, how do you know they think of DKA? I can smell them. (laughs) So your nurses are fabulous at helping you to identify that. And and that, that finding with significant ketosis is pretty common. Wow, good to know. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a silly thing to look out for, but it could very easily point you towards a diagnosis. So yeah, yes, no. and you won't miss it when you smell it. it <laughs> okay. That smell is unique. Personally, I feel like I guess I haven't smelled it at this point, but all the DKA patients I've seen have been, you know, they've been on the the insulin drip for a little while. By the time I see them in the morning, so sure, I'll keep an eye out for that. Are there any common precipitating factors for DKA versus HHS? I mean, I'm sure there's ones that can cause both, but do you see any for one disease versus the other? Sure. So for DKA, the two most common causes are new diagnosis and omission of insulin. So I think, you know, nine times out of 10 omission of, not nine times, maybe six times out of 10, omission of insulin is the contributing factor. It is important to recognize that other precipitating illnesses can cause DKA. I had one patient who was very well controlled, and every time she had a myocardial infarction, she went into DK. Oh, wow. Only time she ever went into DK. So that would be another contributing factor. People with HHS usually have multiple system problems, and they get sick on multiple fronts. So I, you know, someone develops a gastroenteritis, and they're not eating, and so they skip their insulin, and then, you know, but their glucose is high because they're sick and they're still not eating, and then they get dehydrated because they're peeing things out. So I think that those people usually come through a little bit more complex pathway because multiple things are going wrong, where it could be as simple as someone with type 1, just missing. I mean, we had a, a kid that went to a bowl game. He was in the marching band and left without his insulin. 36 hours later, he's in oh, DK. Wow. And he hadn't partied. He didn't do anything else. He just didn't have his insulin. Yeah. So... So for DKA, it happened quite a bit quicker, and it can be relatively straightforward. But HHS is usually multiple system problems. Okay. You know, when, we, when we're in the hospital, all, a lot of our patients are on multiple drugs, you know, you know, home drugs. Are there any specific drugs that are commonly implicated in precipitating DKA or HHS? Boy, that's tricky. Um, yeah. So there isn't anything you could just put your finger on. I would say that Corticosteroids are a very common trigger for hyperglycemia, and that could start the pathway for some people. Mm-hmm. I got stumped once because one of my patients with type 1 was put on the diuretic. It's an atypical diuretic that caused a metabolic acidosis and tipped them into DKA. But there are, there are less medicines that will trigger DKA. HHS, again, there's not a single medication. I think it's usually if they get sick in some other way. The steroid would be the one class that I'd always ask about. I guess the other for DK might be recreational drug use in type one. Okay. You know, if someone's doing cocaine or they're doing something and they're not taking, they're not doing self-care because they're under the influence, mm-hmm. that would be the other thing. Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's great to know. I'm, and when I was, you know, reviewing these topics, they just give yeah. you a laundry list of medications that say, oh, can be a precipitating factor. So even just narrowing it down to those two big categories is helpful just to always watch out for, you know, steroids and, you know, screen patients for any recreational drug use. 
Well, that's all the questions I have for you, Dr. Shubrook. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this interview with me. Sure. And I think it's wonderful that you're having this dialogue about board studying and clinical rotations, particularly in this day of COVID where we feel so isolated. So I think this is a really good move and hopefully the students find this of value. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Hopefully they do too.